Hi, I'm Tessa Court, the CEO of Intelligence Bank. Welcome to Marketing Heroes, a podcast dedicated to our favorite marketers from around the world, hearing their stories, their views on the state of marketing, and their advice for professionals who aspire to transition from good to great. The podcast is presented by our very own Rob Weiss, VP of Marketing at Intelligence Bank. There are 7 billion people on our planet, and I reckon 2 billion of us have used or wanted to use products promoted by my guest today. During his time at Starbucks, he was the architect of the Starbucks digital experience, building award-winning loyalty and personalization programs that created deep connections with customers. At Amazon, he oversaw marketing and public relations teams and led a team of software developers responsible for Amazon wish lists and gift registry services. At Electronic Arts, he is Chief Marketing Officer, leading the marketing, publishing, and analytics organization that is expanding EA's reach to more players, connecting them to leading games and services, and building long-lasting relationships with brands and franchises. He is responsible for the marketing of EA's global brands, global publishing and demand planning, analytics and insights, and marketing communications. I am thrilled to welcome to the Marketing Heroes podcast, brand visionary and thought leader, Chris Bruzzo. Hey, Chris. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Our absolute pleasure. Now, you recently celebrated four years at EA. Why did you join originally and what have been some of your major achievements over the journey? Yeah, great. And listening to that um, intro made me realize that I feel like I've been on a path to get to EA um, as sort of my rightful um, place at this point in my career. Because, you know, at Amazon, I was learning how to connect with a huge customer base only through online experiences. But not a lot of point of view there. The Amazon brand is not really a storytelling brand, not really uh, uh, putting itself forward with its own point of view, just being, you know, what Jeff Bezos always talks about, which is, you know, the best selection, the lowest prices, the most convenient. So that's that um, was not a brand with a real strong, you know, point of view, but it taught me a lot. And then I went to Starbucks, which is a brand that has actually a lot of point of view um, and was mostly a physical experience, you know, um, tens of millions of people walking into thousands of Starbucks stores every week. And my job was to light that up using technology and create a digital experience that would amplify what was happening in the stores. So that was really cool. But even there, you know, the, the Starbucks brand serves as a, as a convener. It brings people together. It helps them start their day, things like that. Um, but really, when I was there, we talked about when Starbucks is at its best, it's helping to create human connections, but then it's our customers who make the stories from there. It's the connections between our customers and between Starbucks customers and Starbucks partners, the baristas. That's really the magic. And so I learned about all of that. And then I arrived at EA, and EA really represents kind of finally for me a brand that really takes responsibility for making the stories. We make the stories here. Um, but what's what's fascinating is I came into video games 
right at a moment where a, sh a multi-year shift was underway and is now taken hold, which is that it used to be like films. The games were complete stories and the game makers would deliver them to you and you could interact with their stories. But when I came to EA, a big that this big shift had occurred, which is now the players themselves are interacting with the stories that the game makers have made and adding to the story. They're adding their own as members of the community, as players in the game, or even as creators, um, they're taking the game experience to a whole new level. So for me, and creating all kinds of new stories that nobody could have expected. So for me, it feels very natural to kind of in my career to have gone from learning at Amazon to learning at Starbucks to now really engaging with this like amazing customer base that is so engaged in the stories that in the stories that we make. So that's, phenomenal. that's kind of a long way around, Rob. I didn't talk about, you know, like achievements here. I, I could do that, but I will say I've always thought that my passion comes from connecting humans to brands and to humanizing brands so that there can be much more of a dialogue and a relationship there and that both sides are learning and appreciating each other. And it certainly makes for better products and better companies. Um, and so that's always been my, really what, where my passion is and what drives me. And so it kind of, you know, whether that was at Amazon or at Starbucks or even in the in the years of healthcare marketing I did before Amazon, and certainly now at EA, it all has that, that the, the moments I'm the most proud of are the ones where we really connected emotionally with people. Excellent. Now I'm fascinated that uh, that marketing and, and publishing or, or sales and analytics all sit under your control. How hard was it to balance that traditional, you know, that sales marketing friction? Yeah, well, I got to have three years um, building a really high functioning marketing team here before I took on the publishing and sales responsibility. And I think that was really important because um, it allowed me to get the team, my team in place, but also for me to get fully up to speed. I got to see three full annual cycles of the company before I was responsible for publishing and sales. So that was really helpful. Um, and when we did make this shift in this last year, it also felt very natural because as video games become these ongoing experiences that last weeks, months, years, where players are spending, you know, hundreds of hours in the experience, um, this is a much more direct relationship from the game and the game company like EA with the player. And so for us, uh, while we still have very strong partnerships with retailers all over the world, more and more of our focus is on the direct player relationship. And so um, we putting my digital marketing team together with the publishing and sales team has really helped to 
accelerate that um, and get the whole team moving toward building those kinds of direct relationships with players. And it even, it even facilitates our ability to move to new business models, you know, like subscription. Um, if you have like an organization that's separate and they're just driving, only driving unit sales through retail, you don't have a single integrated team that's driving whatever the right player choice is for how a player wants to engage. So bringing the teams together, while it's a big responsibility for me and for my teams, um, feels very natural. Um, now you also asked about analytics and yeah. I, I did take, I took on analytics the moment I arrived four years ago, because honestly, uh, marketing and especially digital marketing had moved toward incorporating data as the foundation of a lot of the marketing decisions that we make, or at least how we measure our performance and hold ourselves accountable. Um, it's also at a company like EA, it's um, having the analytics function means we are responsible for the, the listening posts that we create inside the games and outside the games where we are directly hearing and watching through the data how players are behaving and how they're interacting with us. Um, and so those two things, the ability to measure how we're doing and the ability to be very close to the player feedback loop. Um, I knew when I came four years ago that those were going to be essential to being able to build a great digital marketing team here and to help lead you know, EA into the kind of direct to player um, subscription future that is ahead of us. Excellent. Now EA has more than 300 registered players around the world. Even the country selector on your website has 31 different options. How do you safeguard the EA brand in so many different markets? Yeah, it is, um, requires, first of all, a major engine of talented people and technology to ensure that we get the games culturalized in all those countries around the world. Um, in some cases, we employ different talent, voice talent, to record different commentary for the game um, where where that becomes really important uh, for us to establish a very real and authentic experience in that country. So mm, it is certainly a big undertaking. Um, however, it's also really rewarding because when we when we do a good job of translating these stories and experiences within our games in a way that resonates culturally in the right language, with the right customs, with the right teams, with the right history, um, even down to things like getting the chants right, the chants in the in the in the football stadiums, getting the crowd noise right. Um, when we can do that, our players love it and they reward us for it with their loyalty and their engagement and their time and their money. And so, um, so it is A, complicated, and B, really worth it 
Um, in terms of protecting the EA brand, I guess for us, we really do believe our job is to facilitate player engagement. And so we're, we're less worried about auditing it, you know, auditing how our brand is doing and protecting it. We're more interested in making culturally relevant experiences that increase engagement. So we're very, we're very much on the positive side of that, that equation, as opposed to the, the side where we're, where we're worried about um, the brand not being represented well. Of course, we have, you know, a smart legal team that, you know, protects our trademarks, um, which is our responsibility to do that. But, but mostly our focus is very positive on, uh, on making the games culturally relevant all over the world. Excellent. So that's a great job with the, with the players. In terms of the relationships with some of the largest sporting brands on the you know in the world like FIFA and Premier League, NBA, NFL, how do you navigate those relationships, the, the co-branding and the different perspectives that they bring to the relationship? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, those are long-standing partnerships. They go back many, many years. Um, it's actually you know when I come from other companies, the marketing relationships change over time. You, you might have different partners three years from now than you do today. In sports, though, the governing bodies are the governing bodies for those sports, or the leagues are the leagues for those sports. And so we have the benefit of working with the authority on that sport. Um, now, that's not to say there aren't a lot of partners and we aren't um, constantly adding and managing our partnerships. Certainly in the world of football, clubs and leagues is a another complex part of our business. And we take it very seriously. Um, it is actually a shared responsibility between um, three different teams at EA. The studios who make the games, the developers, the marketers on my team, and our business development folks who manage the relationships. Um, and so we actually have quite a lot of talented people who uh, attend to, take care of those relationships. Um, and we have this other benefit, which is that a number of our people have been with, especially on the sports side, have been with EA and EA Sports for some time. And so we have that experience, that know-how, people who've been around the barn a few times um, with our partners and have built a trusting relationship. And that goes a huge, long way to being successful together. And then, of course, we have, we have the fact that video games are growing and the engagement with video games are growing, even as some other forms of entertainment or at least watching sports are not growing. Traditional linear TV um, is not growing at the rate that the digital experiences are growing. And so we find ourselves um, in a very positive position with our licensors, with our league and sport partners, because um, our, our audience is growing, the engagement with our, with our shared audience Football fans who are also play our game is growing, um, and in general, we are bringing 
the next generation of fans into the sport. And so that's a very positive place to be as we're working with partners. Excellent. Now, full disclosure, Chris, I was an absolute superstar on uh, FIFA 98 back in the day. Nice. Uh, but with <laughs> absolutely, but with live services and all these different platforms, I'm too scared to challenge my nephews now on uh, on FIFA and NBA Live. And I recently had the surreal experience of uh, watching my daughter on w watching someone else on YouTube um, play a video game, which right. is just blew my mind. And that's kind of the thing to do to watch others playing video game. Um, so given all these changes, you know, how hard has it been? For the organization to to pivot um, to attack these new business models well first of all rob in addition to doing this podcast for marketing heroes i think it would be super fun if you started a youtube channel where all you did was play fifa 98. <laughs> i think that would be awesome and i and Good. to be honest with you i think people would really like that they probably have a lot of fun because you've got a great attitude and uh, a great personality and uh, i think people would love to see that game be played by a true superstar like you um yeah i mean i think um the concept the notion of entertainment you know continues to evolve and we have a, a generation of young people who are really used to sharing digital experiences with each other. And so they find a lot of camaraderie in being able to do things together even when they're not in the same place. And so it's not a surprise really that that great personalities, people with um, a lot of charisma and who are entertaining can, can do something in a shared experience on a digital channel that would entertain people. Um, and especially if you're a digital native and, you know, having shared experiences online and through technology has been a part of your life for as long as you can remember, it feels really natural, actually, to have a good time watching somebody else be entertaining and do something like play a video game really, really, really well. Um, now, what I think is important, like in sport, or in entertainment, there's those who are the very best at it. And that's a very small number of people. Uh, so uh, even the ability to have a big following on Twitch requires you to not only be able to play games well, but you have to be entertaining. Um, that doesn't mean that shared experiences and playing together um, can only be rewarding for the very, very best. And so our view, our view is that we want to make it really easy for people at every level to be able to um, play and then share that play experience with other people that they enjoy playing with um, or that they know. And so, you know, I don't know um, if it's this way for you, but every community I've ever lived in, there's always a recreational football league of guys who kick the ball around on the weekend. And those men and women who are playing on the weekend, um, they play a lot and they're really good. They may not be the best in the world, but they're definitely the best in that neighborhood, in that town, in that part of the world. And, um, and so we have that in video games too. So 
our job is to allow people to be great at their own level or within their own sphere. Um, and then of course, to encourage those who wanna go for greater and greater skill and, and, and reach to be one of the best in the world, of course we want to allow, encourage that, allow for that, reward that, recognize that, we wanna do all that. Um, and we wanna make it fun and rewarding to do that also in your neighborhood. Right. Okay, so that's enough of the big picture. I want to learn about the micro, the, the tools and tactics you utilize with your teams, your direct reports, and how you manage your time. But let's let's start with the hardware. What phone do you use and are you PC or Mac? Okay. Well, I just got my iPhone 10s. So, you know, I have this excuse, which is that, well, we make mobile games, so I always have to be on the latest device. Um, and so, um, and so far, the company keeps, you know, letting me do that. So I have an iPhone XS. I didn't get the bigger one um, because, to me, that feels like uh, the large print edition of a book. You know, like you have to be really old to need a screen that big on your phone. So I'm trying to fight that off, like. You know, plus it doesn't wouldn't doesn't fit in my pocket very well. So, uh, yeah. iPhone XS. I um, I started as a Mac guy all the way back in like 1985 when I was in high school, and I had a I had what they called a Fat Mac, which was yeah. uh, one of the original modular Macs, and mine was top of the line because it was the Mac 128K, which meant Ooh. that it had 128K of memory. Wow. Um, which today we don't even measure things in K anymore. So, um, but uh, so I was a Mac guy from the very beginning. Um, I was, uh, you know, in 1987, I was like the school news, the school um, editor of the school newspaper, and it was the first time we published the school newspaper. We printed it, but we published it using Aldous PageMaker, which is now an Adobe product, but. Um, it was at the time it was called DTP desktop publishing and we would lay out the pages and then, and then they'd be printed and, and then, and then distributed to everybody. So, um, so I was very early on a, a Mac fan. Um, then as I moved into my professional life after college and stuff, I definitely worked for companies that were PC only. And so I learned to appreciate PC and to be honest, win 10, was a really solid, strong operating system that had a lot of cool advantages, was pretty powerful, and it it worked very well with all kinds of web apps and network services, um, classic enterprise software, things like that. And uh, honestly, Macs were falling behind, even as recently as a couple of years ago. It was hard and clunky to use Macs, and so I gave up my Mac and went to PC and enjoyed Win 10, but to be honest with you, I after about two years, I got frustrated and I'm back to Max. And Ooh. Max are yeah, Max are um, have come a long way and they're now really really effective. Um, pretty much, I don't I don't run into any obstacles anymore in terms of what I want to be able to do on a Mac. So I'm very happy to be back on the Mac platform. Oh, that's a relief. I, I didn't I thought the story might not uh, end there. Um, <laughs> Um, okay, so which work software couldn't you live without? Mm. Evernote. 
Evernote is my brain extended. It's, um, and Evernote, you know, I can be totally indiscriminate about starting a note. I don't really have to worry about anything. I don't have to, I don't have to label it correctly. I don't have to put it in a file system under a particular folder so I can find it later. Um, I don't even have, doesn't even, it's not even important what I name the note because the search functionality is so good. And so I just have this constantly evolving stack of notes and the notes that are the most recent ones, one of which is always labeled to do. Um, and that one, um, you know, is constantly being updated. It's always there for me. It's on every one of my devices. Uh, it syncs effortlessly. Um, and, and so, um, I use that and I, and then any other notes that I've started that are not my to do actually honestly serve to remind me, you know, of, uh, other things that are current that are happening in my work or in my life. So I have, I think I have over 10,000 notes in my Evernote, uh, application going back. I don't know, at least six years. Um, I, I'm very. I'm very careful about ensuring that I back it up uh, every once in a while because it would be a disaster if I lost it. Wow, you're going to be getting a nice gift basket uh, from the, the lovely folks at Evernote, maybe with a green T-shirt. Um, now you got a, you have a massive budget there and a, and a huge team. So, in terms of the way you attack the week and the the day and the month, are you a Sunday preparer, Sunday night preparer? Do you you wake early on a Monday to plan out your day and your week. How do you attack what's coming up? Yeah, I'm a Sunday preparer who also wakes up early on Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Um, it depends. But um, the week ahead, if there are um, big, big moments where we're making a significant shift into something new, then I will definitely take time to ground myself on Sunday. Um, before heading into the week, uh, especially when I'm dealing with people topics, you know, the development of high performing teams or the people that report to me, um, that uh, uh, helping to develop people professionally requires real thoughtfulness. Um, and people are so incredibly unique. And so there's never a um, standard way of managing somebody's career growth. And so I really do have to find time to be thoughtful. Um, and so I like to do that, um, you know, in advance. Sometimes, you know, Sundays are good for that. Sometimes, you know, just the evening before is good. The mornings for me are more of a time to um, ensure that I'm sharp on what's happening that day. So I, I really use that time before I arrive at the office as a chance to, to think about the things that are coming up in the day and what I want to um, try to achieve um, throughout the day. I don't really think very much further out than the day I'm heading into um, or the week ahead. Um, and honestly, I could not tell you right now because it's Monday uh, here on the west coast of the U.S., I think it's Tuesday where you are, but um, uh, but um, I could not tell you what's happening on my schedule on Friday of this week. Um, now, um, 
you know, 27 times over the last 30 days, something's come up that has landed on this Friday's schedule. And so I'm very, um, very focused on ensuring that we're covering all the right things with my teams. But um, I try to stay focused by biting off kind of what's right in front of me. Um, but a big part of my time has to be has to be spent in each day focusing on the long horizon. And when I when I realize that I'm spending too much of my day every day on what's right in front of us, you know, this week, this month, this quarter, even this fiscal year, then I know that I'm out of balance um, and that we're missing. We're going to be missing big opportunities because we aren't thinking about far enough out for us to generate really big ideas that take sometimes nine months or a year to develop before they can really be delivered into the marketplace in a way that leaves no opportunity on the table. Um, and so I know when I, I have that internal kind of measure, if I feel like I'm getting sucked into the day to day too much for too many days in a row, an alarm bell goes off for me. And I literally dedicate time to talking to my team about how we pull ourselves out of the of the day to day. So we'll even put more time in to get ourselves out of being so focused on the day to day. Right. And one of the pain points for marketers or one of the challenges um, are managing projects. You know, there's so much going on and each project has so many different outputs, be it social or otherwise. Um, are you a are you a software person? Are you a, an email updater, a, a you know report reader? Um, how do you attack um, you know project management or re reviewing um, status reports on projects? And how do you encourage your direct reports and their teams to to approach them? Yeah, well, as you said, um, many of the channels that we operate as marketers in today are moving at such a velocity that um, even if you wanted to try to review everything, you would never make it. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's the CMO of Netflix, uh, Kelly Bennett. And Kelly said that he, he made it an objective of his and he succeeded. Um, and so to, uh, to, to do the following, which is to not be the approver of any creative coming out of Netflix. And, um, it's a great mindset because um, what he does instead is he ensures he's got great people who are highly accountable. And that's what I do here too. Great people who are highly accountable. I certainly help to push them early, make sure that the brief is smart and has the right insights in it. I certainly help to uh, eliminate obstacles when they run into, into challenges where they need more resources or they need more direction or some part of the company is standing in the way of doing something great. I certainly focus on those kinds of things. But in general, I um, try to create scale by removing the top layer from the day to day. And then the next layer at my level and then the next level below me, removing from the day to day processes and the level below them removing. And so actually, when you get down closer to the channels where we engage with customers and the content that we use, those people have appropriately very different ways of managing the information. They do use a lot of real-time reports and dashboards. I use almost none of that. Um, 
and and so a lot more of what I'm doing is um, is ensuring that the teams have the right measures in place, that they have the right processes in place, that they have the right talent in place. Um, and then I tend to get engaged on things that are exceptions, something runs into an obstacle or it's hit a problem or whatever else. And then I'm there to help, you know, clear things out. I try to keep the um, info, the informational load to a manageable level by getting to a set of um, reports or things that I watch on a daily on a daily basis. So I get a daily report on revenue. I get um, a weekly uh, report on our games and player engagement and revenue across all of our lines of business. And because um, I can just quickly look at a snapshot like that in email every day, I know exactly what the daily revenue is on it on any of the games in our portfolio. And so as a result, I don't have to spend a lot of time studying the report. I look at that day's number and I know it's either up or down from the day before or it's way off, it's way up or way under where it ought to be. Um, and so that little bit of investment in kind of being current with what's happening with our products uh, means I have a very, very little, little investment in trying to um, uh, digest a lot of information. I'm very selective about the inputs that come into me. Um, and I'm constantly current with what's happening in our in our games and, and our business. Excellent. So that's that's inside. I guess with all with the velocity of change in, in marketing in the digital world and so much great creativity bubbling to the surface, how do you keep abreast of the latest and greatest outside of the organization so that you can come to to work and to challenges with, with a different mindset or some, some new uh, influences? Yeah. A few, a few ways. Um, uh, first of all, I think that that's like a impossible quest to stay abreast of everything. Um, and uh, and I think that um, that it changes over time. Um, being really current um, around what uh, linear TV shows or films are popular in culture, you know, right now. Um, is has always been important for entertainment companies to be honest with you it's a little less important um today than it was 10 years ago today i'm just as we're, we are just as interested in what's happening on twitch or or what's happening with a particular community um around a game or a sport um and so anyway i think the idea that you could sort of have a magical set of things that you always plug into and keeps you abreast is not dynamic enough. Um, and so as a result, it's kind of like a constant problem of where else should I be looking? And to me, the best way uh, that I found to keep an open perspective and, and, and fresh creative perspectives is to, is to have a lot of interesting people around me. Um, and we like we engage in a wide range of conversations and interests, um, and so we encourage that kind of diversity. So you know, people that are into Etsy and making stuff, and people that are into sports or into extreme sports, um, we we encourage people to talk about that and share that uh, that perspective. Um, 
And so as a result, when we allow people to pursue their passions and then we encourage them to share it with each other, um, then we end up coming into contact with a lot more things than if we sort of clipped the headlines and distributed a daily digest of what's happening in entertainment today, you know? Um, and I and, and I think that over time in my career, I've come to be able to work with and meet and and build friendships with a lot of different marketers in a lot of different industries. And so um, and so I so I have the benefit of a you know relatively large group of people who share interesting things with me and I share interesting things with them. And um, that I guess for somebody like me who's very social, it's my nature to that's how I stay abreast of what's happening. I like it. And I look forward to interviewing many of your great friends on the podcast. <laughs> um, so probably the last question uh, uh, from me is, you know, most marketers are out there scraping and creating and, and, and competing, et cetera. So what advice would you give to a, a younger version of yourself? Let's talk five, 10 years ago um, about how to navigate this exciting world that we live in, in, in marketing and digital. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think it's really important, um, to not fall into the misconception that there's a very straight path that your career is going to go on. Um, in my experience, the, the surprising, unexpected, uh, moves um, or opportunities even inside companies that have come up that are unorthodox have been actually the greatest sources of growth and success for me. Um, so um, as marketers, we're, we're surrounded by creative all the time and we should apply that creativity to our own stories. So let's be creative about our stories and how they get written. Um, they don't have to be boring and linear. Um, and generally, um, if they are, they're not that, they're not that exciting. So I think, uh, that's one very important thing, which I think means an earlier version of myself. Um, I would say stay open to the things that you're excited about, that you're interested in. If you have a particular passion for a particular product in your company's portfolio or, a particular um, thing that's happening in in the culture of your company that might not be, you know, directly related to what you do today. That's okay. Find time and energy to invest in it. I mean, like famously for me, early, early, early in my career, I had yet to be able to break into marketing, and um, this was this would be like in 1992. Oh. And uh, I was working for a life insurance, life insurance company. I was doing like accounting kind of work. Mis I was miserable. I mean, the work um, was just not engaging for me. And but I was doing well at it. And so they promoted me, which was terrible, um, into another accounting role, you know. And and um, I noticed um, this flyer to help join a volunteer committee to run the employee picnic for the summer 
the event. And um, everybody I worked with was like, oh my God, what a waste of time and what a hassle and, um, you know, totally not interested in that. And, but I was like, listen, that sounds like creative and interesting and fun and different than what I'm doing now. And maybe a chance to do some, some writing, maybe a chance to do some marketing. So, so I jumped at it and I just got lucky because this committee ended up meeting for like six months and, and uh, the company had just been acquired. And so the new leadership came in and they were focused on culture. And so the senior person in the office decided to join the committee and worked with me. Um, this was somebody who was like six or seven levels above me um, and got to know me and I got to know him and he got to appreciate the way I think and the way I operate in my energy and my ambition. And as a result, um, coming out of that, uh, I, I was selected for another role and one that was outside of accounting and was much more interesting. And that never would have happened otherwise because I, but, but I was, but I was passionate about wanting to pursue the things I was interested in. And I let that lead me to an unexpected opportunity. And I, I think that's probably like the most important thing um, from a career trajectory standpoint, the most important, yeah. like the most important, really pragmatic thing I would say for marketers, especially is to constantly be improving as a communicator to, and, and one of the best ways to do that is to write, is to, is to take time to really write out your thoughts, um, to write in a narrative form. It really challenges you. I certainly learned this at Amazon as well. They're famous for this. Um, it challenges you to do more complete thinking than a PowerPoint slide um, challenges you to do. And as a result, your rationale is stronger and your business case is stronger and you're way more compelling. Like the communication from you to your audience has the opportunity to be way more compelling because you've been thoughtful and you're focused on how to communicate it. And as marketers, being compelling and getting a, a group of people to rally behind your idea, it's like essential to what mm -hmm. we do. So that's the, uh, that's the other thing that I would say is important. Brilliant. Well, Chris, on behalf of uh, the Intelligent Bank family and the growing li um, listenership of uh, the Marketing Heroes podcast, I want to thank you massively for taking the time uh, to have this conversation. And I know it'll be of great benefit to, uh, to marketers all around the world. Thanks, Rob. I had a lot of fun chatting with you. Thanks for having me. And as always, for more information on our great marketing operations platform, please visit intelligencebank.com.